It's a slightly different edition of Soundtracking this week as we bring you another of our live events, this time recorded at the Mowat Summer House weekend in London in June. My guest was the brilliant playwright and screenwriter Abby Morgan, whose work includes movies Iron Lady and Shame and TV dramas The Hour, River and The Split. We're bringing this one to you in two parts because as well as talking about music, we also spoke at length about her craft. And while it doesn't quite fit with our usual brief, we thought we should share what Abby had to say about that too, as she does provide great insight into the process of writing for the screen. More on that later, but we begin with one of the film scores that she listens to when she's working. Top marks if you can work out what it is before she reveals all. So I don't know, some of you might know, some of you might know, I have a podcast called Soundtracking with Edith Bowman where I speak to filmmakers about their relationship with music and that's everything from producers, directors, writers, actors, composers, music supervisors uh, and we launched the podcast um, coming up for two years ago um, and we, have, we had a week off this week which was uh, well needed but we're fast approaching our 100th episode as well which is great. And we find it quite hard, if I'm being honest, getting women on the show. So it's an absolute joy today that I'm uh, able to uh, welcome someone who I've known for quite a few years, but I think constantly inspires and entertains us with her work. Um, so please, would you put your hands together for the fabulous Abby Morgan. Hi. Thanks Hello. for being here. Let's like <laughs> slide into that get way. Get yourself right. comfortable. Get myself comfy. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for coming and doing um, Soundtrack and Live. You're as part of the Moe Summer House. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. I'm trying to remember the first time that we met. It involved apple pie. That's all. Oh, my God. Do you know what? I've still got that pie case. Have you? Yes, I found it the other day. Um, <laughs> yes, we met. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite excruciating. It? No. So <laughs> when I was working on the film Iron Lady. Yeah. Do I talk as if I'm talking to you or talking as if... Just Both. to everybody. Yeah. A small soiree. <laughs> um, we met when I was working on the film Iron Lady and Meryl Streep had this genius idea to invite a small selection of key journalists, female journalists, around for her famous chicken pie. Uh, and so we had a dinner, didn't we? Yeah, And Phil I think you all went to a screening. Yeah, we all went to watch Iron Lady. And then they gave you gin and tonics on the way back? Um, they definitely... I, none of us could drink because we were so nervous <laughs> because we all knew we were going to have dinner with Meryl Streep. Which is so funny because we were all so nervous about the journalists arriving. <laughs> and so we spent the day... This is, this, this is quite funny. We'd each said we'd do a course. So Phila Deloitte was doing the apple pie. Mm -hmm. Meryl was doing the chicken pie. And I was doing the starters. And at the time, I was shooting a show called The Hour. And so they were all, literally, we were all baking in the kitchen. And I got a friend of mine who is a chef to make all these incredible starters. And I turned up and pretended I'd made them. So that, there you go. <laughs> so that's what happened, yeah. So that's what I remember. Um, but I remember I was lucky enough to, to be sat next to you. Oh, that. that's we, good. And we just started chatting. Yeah, yeah. And then I think the next time that we um, we did a work thing was, um, was at Latitude Festival. Oh, happy days. And... I didn't know how much of a music fan you were, and it was yeah. very evident very quick that music's a big part of your yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, really. I think it's really big. I mean, I, I preface this by saying I've got the attention span of a gnat, so actually sort of three minutes of a record is about my record. That shows how old I am. <laughs> of, a, of, a, of a track uh, is, you know, I think actually suits my, my whole, you know, my, I just love it. But, um, but also I think every generation, everybody I've ever been brought up with has, has loved music and I've also got teenagers now so 
and that's when you know you're really uncool. So, mm. uh, so yeah, no. So music's always been incredibly important to me. When you're working, do you use music for inspiration, for characters, for? Yeah, I do. I mean, I definitely listen to scores when I'm working on different tracks. So, I mean, and it's interesting. So this week alone. I've just finished a film set in 1950s um, Tangier, Morocco. Wow. So weirdly, I was listening to loads of Bastille for that. I don't know why, but it needed a sort of energy to it. Um, and then I have been doing, starting a new series, second series of The Split. So I've been listening to loads of The Pretenders, because uh, that's kind of, you know, heartbreak. I love her. Mm. I, um, you know, I love Chrissy Hind. And yesterday I was doing some stuff on Cleopatra, and that's quite... Um, I just had, I actually was listening to loads of um, Hans Zimmer because I find very sort of meditative his music. So it's, it really varies, but yeah, I definitely draw upon that. Any particular Hans Zimmer you're listening to? What kind of? Uh, uh, Red Line, Thin yeah. Red Line, just because it's, and yeah, because it's just such a beautiful score mm. and it's just, yeah, stunning. Congratulations on the split. I bloody loved it. Oh, I thought it was. I bloody love you for saying I that. I just, I really enjoyed it. I love. I mean, I love Nicola Walker. And you worked which you, the, in River as yeah, well. Yeah, I did it. So that. I did a show called River, which was a cop show with Stellan Skarsgård. And loads of people haven't seen it, but if you have seen it, it's about a relationship between a cop and his buddy. And you realise by the end of the first ten minutes that the buddy's dead. And so, mm. I'd written Nicola Walker as a ghost, and I remember you know, being really enthusiastic when I went on set, because I'm used to actors going, oh, I love your work, thank you. And I sit there and go, thanks, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, and, um, and I was, hi, Nicola. And she was like, yeah, hi. And I was like, are you enjoying yourself? She went, well, actually, I'm finding it really hard being a ghost, because nobody noticed me and no one can see me. And I realised that it was a really, really hard part to give a, a, an actress a role where really nobody connects with you except the central character. And you're constantly in the background while everyone else is having a good time, sort of walking through a scene. And I mentally thought, I've got to write her a decent role. So the role of Hannah and her sisters, like what I did there, um, <laughs> was really focused very much on, on, on Nicola. And it was, for me, it was payback. Uh, hence, she talks all the time. Uh, so don't complain. Got the attention bitch. of a lot yeah. of people. <laughs> yeah, so that, so that was really the kind of motivation for that. When you were writing the split, was there music that was around when you were creating that? Were there things that you'd listen to? Well, it's funny because I think about the backdrop to my growing up and my childhood, and it was the 70s era, so it was Joni Mitchell and Dory Previn, and um, going into sort of uh, late 70s, early 80s, you know, Joan Trading, and my dad was a ma you know, loved the Beatles, and mm. 
And so I grew up with a lot of, you know, Bowie and all of that. And weirdly, the show is very much about legacy. And so for me, those tracks are a part of my day-to-day life anyway. And I was trying to find ways of weaving them in. But my God, you know, some of them just won't give you the, you know, you can't get the rights for half those shows. (laughs) Thank you very much, Oasis. I can't get Wonderwall and I really need it for the second series. I'm begging them. No, I really need it. It's quite key for the show, actually. So it'll be a really bad cover version by yeah, Noasis. So, yeah, Noasis, that yeah. great band. <laughs> Today is gonna be the day that they're gonna throw it back to you. By now, you should have somehow realized what you gotta do. I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now. So I can't remember if it's specifically, but that music's very evocative, and I'm sort of trying to play with this idea of how memory works, and so you can have a very vivid vivid memory and let go of it, and then you can meet someone and it pops another period Mm -hmm. in your life. So definitely Series 2 of The Split, I'm really interested in looking at the... um, late 80s early 90s periods when I came out of uni and it's about mm. that those characters and their kind of uni years really I Hannah and Christy and Nathan the central characters so I heard you talking about um it's a lovely story about when you were a kid and your dad was running a theater yeah and you'd spend so much time mm. there with your siblings mm. and on a Saturday before mm. the matinee mm. there was a live band that used yeah, to play yeah, and yeah. you have real vivid memories of of that atmosphere yeah. of a live band and music yeah can you remember what kind of stuff they played yeah it was very um it was very, it was weirdly folky. It was a combination of, um, you know, like that moment in Richard uh, Curtis' movie, is it? Is it uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral, you know, when Nicola Walker is sort of... So it was a lot of that kind of strumming on a guitar. But actually it was also quite rocky. And, and weirdly there were a lot of locals. My dad ran a theatre in Newcastle upon Tyne, so there was a lot of local folk songs that had been given a kind of David Bowie spin. Yeah. So I remember it was very, it was just very sort of hippie meets rock, really. So my dad would always have bands on stage. And in fact, I don't know if I said this, but Sting was in the band. His wife at the time was, had had a young baby, Joe, And I was in a play with my sister. And his wife acted as a kind of nanny for us and looked after us. And so he was in the band at the time. And I remember that because he had a black and yellow sort of mohairy jumper. And that's why he was called Sting, because it was the colours of a wasp. So I remember from a very young age, and he was, had very blondy bleach hair. And I remember he'd be in the band at the back. Wow. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? That's how old I am. You still keep in touch with him? No, but funny enough, Trudy Styler's occasionally uh, approached me about jobs, and I always want to email back and go, I don't know if you remember, but I'm trying to be cooler than that, and so I don't. But I did call my dog Styler, which is really embarrassing in the film industry because they all think it's a homage to Trudy Styler, but in fact, it's Free Styler. My kids came up with the name. So uh, indirectly, there's a weird... Yeah, yeah. I like it. That's brilliant. It is amazing, I think, as well with music, how, you know, you're talking about how things can unlock memories, and music is a big thing for that. And I think that now with music and film, that can do a lot of the same thing for people. Mm. And I know that there's certain films for you that you're huge Mm. fans Mm. of, things like Tootsie. Yeah, massive fan of Tootsie. I think Tootsie, you know, it's an incredibly feminist film. I still think it's got one of the best speeches. You know, Dustin Hoffman playing Tootsie says, you know, I I I was a better man dressed as a woman than I ever was as a man. It always stayed with me, but it was one of those films I watched with my mother. I then made my daughter watch it, and she was a little nonplussed. <laughs> so I'm hoping I can take her back another time. Yeah, and I remember the score of that, and that track that goes out on the credits of that is just a beautiful track. Time, I've been passing time 
I think also it's that 70s era of filmmaking, you know, so which goes, you know, from, you know, Scorsese and Coppola and, you know, Cassavetes films. And, you know, it's just that beautiful period of filmmaking. And, and weirdly, although that is a mid-late 80s film, actually, it's yeah, still very evocative of that time. And I, I remember thinking a little, you know, when I was a kid, I used to come and stay with my mum's best friend, lived in London. And for me, cities are just cool. They were cool. And so I always loved New York and I always loved, you know, London and... And in fact, when I went on to write Shame with Steve McQueen, you know, part of the desire was to write a kind of homage to a city that neither of us lived in, but was this place we could go. Because I was in London, he was in Amsterdam, but it was also about revisiting that place, you know, because New York for me and that music of that film is... Mm. And it's also, honestly, it's about what it means to live with actors. And my parents were actors. So the other film I love is Goodbye Girl with Richard Dreyfuss in, which is about a single mum who has to rent out her room to an actor. And again, it's, 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 I think I, I got asked to, I think uh, the W Hotel asked me to pick a series of films, and I think I wrestled between Tootsie and Goodbye Girl, and I can't remember which one I chose, but both of those films I love. Can we talk a bit about Shame? Because yeah. you mentioned the music and that, and. Harry Escott was composer mm. on it, but the combination of the score um, and the use of existing music, be that classical and that Bach piece in particular, yeah. but then also things like Blondie and Chic and Chet Baker mm. and, and mm. things like that. And mm. I know that you and Steve went to New York on a research mm. trip and stuff, and I wanted to know whether there was music that you heard on that trip that, mm. that very much influenced what you then went on and wrote. I think maybe the reason why Steve and I you know, one of the reasons why we really connected at that time and, you know, we worked so well together is that we are absolutely of that generation. Mm. I mean, I think when there's a year difference between us, maybe I'm a year older than him. I think he's October 69, maybe. Uh, so very much those reference points were totally what we grew up with and he's much cooler than me. So, you know, a lot of those tracks, he just could pill like that, you know, and be very unashamed about it. I think what was interesting about Escort, you know, and using Harry Escort, really beautiful soundtrack. And I've got a weird feeling I've worked with him again, so it's going to come back to me. And I can't remember where, but anyway, Harry's an yeah, he, amazing... He did River. He did River. God, sorry, that's no. just terrible. But yeah, he did River, and he's, you know, he's very understated, Harry. And mm. I think that's a very good marriage with Steve, because Steve's always looking for the kind of off note, the kind of dog whistle, the thing. Um, and he just knows how to mu use music really well. amazing dancer actually Steve I'm a is. really yeah he is I'm a really awkward dancer and I always remember going to see after 12 years a slave 
we and in fact actually it was true of shame as well the the after party he had his entire family up there and he's so comfortable dancing that he <laughs> makes you comfortable with like dancing so um so yeah that music's very important and then the goldberg variations which i had always listened to actually he introduced me to the glenn gould version mm. and it is really beautiful because i didn't realize glenn gould hummed when he plays the music and to, to the extent that actually when they came to record it it was a real problem so they actually they actually made him play with um, a motorbike helmet on because the humming was so loud but apparently he kept on tapping his helmet against the piano <laughs> so they had to take the um, helmet off in the end it's but if you, listen, if you listen to his version of it it's really it, I, I tell you I guess I like it because there's a very weird thing going on as a writer because you never I never really read my scripts until someone's come back and gone, I love it. So I'm very unusual in terms of I never reread my scripts. I always press send before. So I get someone to edit it and read, check it for me. Yeah. But I don't read it again because it's too terrifying that it's crap. And also I can't see it. So I send it. And then when someone comes back, even if they say it's crap, then I can weirdly, I can look at it. But I can't quite look at the material. But what I was going to say was that when it does come back, or when you watch something of yours, you've walked every line and you're almost saying them in your head. And, you know, Sarah Kane, the playwright, always said, first rule of theatre, the writer never goes to the party. And I never really understood her. But I kind of get it, which is sometimes as a writer, it's like you've organised a party you don't go to. Mm -hmm. And the reality is the actors go to that party and you watch it. You're always... And I think that's why... And that's also what I've come to love about it. But when I listen to Glenn Gould, I can, I can feel the yearning of the artist to absolutely be in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably... Every writer has that longing, you know? Because they can't... They can't channel. Most of what I try and do, I write, I genuinely write, I'm trying to say to most people, you're not alone. It sounds really weird, but that's often my driver. My drivers often say, you know, you're not alone as a First World War soldier, you're not alone as a sex addict, you're not, you know, I'm trying mm. to sort of take an audience into a world or, or an aspect of a life that you don't normally see. Michael Fassbender being the lead character in that book, but his sister played by Cara Mulligan as well, mm. and, and particularly what you're saying, mm. I 
totally agree with that with her character, you know, in terms of yeah of, of that character. And that was an amazing performance and that musical performance she did in that. That was extraordinary. Well was I mean, extraordinary. I, yeah, I was I had two films shooting at the same time, so Iron Lady was shooting in London and wow. and uh, Shane was shooting in New York and I went out so I didn't get to go out that much on the shoot. Um, but I, I arrived the day that that film, that, that scene was shot and it was up in the Boom Bar, which is this incredible bar at the top of the Standard Hotel. Um, and it was really extraordinary, mainly because she had this dress on that was like Marilyn in Some Like It Hot. But also I forget actors are in character. Mm -hmm. And so when I first met her, I thought, ooh, Carrie's a bit off. <laughs> and I forgot she's in a character and then she got up and did that song and I realised what she was doing which was she was holding herself to do this 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 you know this iconic song and when that song came about the fact that we'd been staying in the standard and Steve and I had gone up to the boom bar for a drink and, and there's something very incongruous about the two of us together because he is like he's he's just he's an, he's a he's a magnificent man in every way and I'm this sort of short Stoke woman next to him and we're in this incredibly glamorous bar and it's filled with very lovely Russian ladies and you know handsome you know cool hipster New York hipsters um, and Steve said wouldn't it be funny if we did New York New York up here and we were both like the audacity of it you know because how do you do a New York film so why not goes you know straight between the eyes with the most iconic song so it was a it was a really wonderful closure to see her do that and was that written in the script yeah it was kind of was something when when you write in this you know you Writing that together, something you, you know. Yeah, very much so. I mean, no, you know, I think the key thing with film is it's absolutely the director's vision, and that's the great thing. You know, what I love about scripts and what I've learned is that you get paid for the script, you don't own the script, and it's very liberating that because it stops you sitting there going, it's mine, no one must change anything. Actually, my job is to constantly serve and make this thing, this muse, really. And so, but the director is the thing that will take it. So, you know, Steve is truly and I mean he's an artist in such a profound way and I he'll still be one of the greatest directors I've worked with so I, I, I definitely you know I, I can grip my hand his hand very tightly and know the things that we absolutely did together but you know there's a for example there's an incredible sex scene that he rang me and said oh we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna shoot this sex scene we just decided it needed it at the end and he was absolutely right you know he just shot this kind of quite high intensity sex sequence and and I just don't know how I would have written that. And he knows how to freefall, but he also knows how to marry music. So, mm. but yeah, New York, New York definitely came out of that. Start spreading. theatre and in terms of music with, within theatre I know musical theatre you're a big Sondheim fan mm, yeah favourite Sondheim uh, Sunday in the Park with George George why is it you 
you always get to sit in the shade while I have to stand in the sun? Hello, George. There is someone in this dress. A trickle of sweat. The back of the head. He always does this. Now the foot is dead. Sunday in the park with George. One more. The collar is damp. Beginning to pinch. The bustle slipping. I won't budge one inch. Who is at the zoo, George? Who is at the zoo? The monkey's at who, George? The monkey's at who? Don't move. I mean, it's a tricky one. You know, the West Side Story. I mean, yeah, who knew? <laughs> and he was so young when he wrote that. Um, yeah, I, I went to him talk recently before I saw a production of one of his shows. What the hell was the show? And I saw a couple of his... I'm going to go and see Company that Marion Elliott um, yeah. uh, produced in September. I mean, that's the Sheila Showbiz in me from a young age. You know, I'm, I, it, it, it still reminds me of growing up and going to see a great musical. And I do love a great... I just saw um, Everybody's Talking About Jamie, which mm-hmm. is just brilliant and yeah. heartbreaking. And it's got music by The Feeling, which I love. Um, I can't remember his name now. It'll come back to me. Uh, um, Richard. No, that's the bass uh, player's Richard. Yeah. Dan. Dan. Yeah. yeah, that's it. You should have seen it. You should have been there. You won't believe the shit we saw. Um, well, I, I just wanted to know your favourite song. But then we were gonna, just went on. <laughs> no, 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 this is great. No, 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 down, dream guest. Down, the dream guest. Um, but I, I want to know about theatre and, oh, music. and music and and where music sits within, uh, you know. Well, you know, when I came out of uni, I was incredibly lucky. I met um, Vicky Featherstone, who is now the artistic director of the Royal Court. And in meeting Vicky, who's just an amazing artistic, creative hub, you know, the people she draws to her. I met people like Stephen Hoggart and Scott Graham, a frantic assembly. And then I met John Tiffany, a fantastic director. And that kind of team of people then led me into understanding how important music was. So, you know, particularly Scott and Stephen, actually, when I worked with Frantic Assembly, because they work all the time, constantly with music. And so they were introducing me to, you know, incredible music. I mean, in fact, they were the one of the first to introduce me to Hans Zimmer, actually. I mean, I've just, I've just written a very short half-hour piece that I'm going to try and do a workshop in the next year with music, with singing in it. Yeah. And that's a TV show. Again, 50s as well, you know, and that's what I loved about La La Land and the way that it tapped into that wonderful, mm. you know, kind of, you know, post-war technicolour, you know, singing in the rain movies and the kind of magic and the joy. And I guess in this era of, you know, Trump <laughs> and Brexit, you know, you're just like, I need joy. 
so music as a sort of short circuit to lift my mood. I mean, I think most writers would admit at some point that they have a depressive tendency because they're on you're on your own all day, and so the only thing you can often change in a room is 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 because you know I go in every day into my flat where I work and it's just me. And um, it is like having a slightly double life. And so music is the way that you lift and change your, your space. Can you remember the last track you listened to? Uh, on Friday. Oh, God, I listened to 1975 on Friday. The new one? Yeah, the new one. It's good, isn't and it? And I also listened to, I listened to that on Friday. I really like them. Mm. I just, that's the joy of having teenagers. Not that my kids are particularly into, my son is much more into, you know, um, Tom Mish and George the Poet and um, yeah. Loyal Carney and that. But the ni- 1975 is so joyous. I just loved it. you say that sometimes you play the same piece of music yeah. again and again yeah. and again is that when you're writing yeah i find lyrics quite tricky and and it's <laughs> you know i keep kind of the joy of um spotify is you know i sometimes go on those genres and mood tracks and i'm thinking <laughs> god i really like this track and then suddenly i go oh my god i'm in an awful spa i hate this track or this is great but oh my god this is like lift music so i kind of i i'm I, you know it's a bit hit and miss but yeah i do i mean there's a lot of I tell you why, there's the weird one, I couldn't sleep the other night, and I don't know if anyone's got this app called Noisily. <laughs> it's really strange. So you can have rain, you can have sea, you can have... it's sort. Of, but the one thing you can have is like a, a hairdryer sound. Which a hairdryer? Okay, it's like a... Like that sound. Oh, I did that really well. And um, <laughs> I've got a future in radio. I can sound design. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, oh, yeah, don't people do that for babies when they were... You know, you, I've heard people say, you know, I, I put the hairdryer on or the hoover. Yeah, the hoover. It's, my God, it's got me... I'm like, that, straight to sleep with it. So I've decided this could be the future. So I might just have light rain or, like, beach music or gulls or something. Uh, and then I, the hairdryer when I need my, when I need my two o'clock nap, which I often do. Um, yeah. Um, I'd love to see you write a story about a musician. Well, we've talked a lot about that. I mean, you and I have been talking about music ideas for a while, mm. and, and, you know, there's one that we keep navigating. And I'm always a bit nervous about can I take on certain things, but mm. I do think that we're in this incredible multi-generation. You know, we're always in middle youth. We're constantly nabbing each other's music or, you know, rediscovering it and sort of, you know, presenting it as if this is the first time anyone's ever heard. Mum, have you ever heard of Joni Mitchell? Um, <laughs> you know, so it's just amazing or... Um, have you listened to the White Album? It's just fantastic, <laughs> Mum. So I think there's, you know, there's always a feeling that you're... That I, uh, what I love is it, is it does cross generations now. And particularly, you know, I see my own kids, you know, going to Wireless, going to the Reading Festival, and, and realising that there is a joy to that and how do I, how do I still engage with that and mm. that that creates a lot of nostalgia. So, yeah, I do think about it a lot. I've, you know, I, it's funny you should say that because I think music more and more... It's also about, in a weird way, letting go of dialogue. Yeah. I'm so tired of words. I mean, A, my characters are talking way too much. Everyone needs to shut up. And I quite like the idea of bringing music and lyrics into it. You know, the great lyrics for me are, are poetry. And I, you know, I find poetry, again, with my 
inability to hold one thought. I love poems before I go to bed because they're simpler and they, you can read a couple of poems and you think, oh, to my reading for the day. Um, and I feel like I feel like a great song, song lyric is like that. Amazing. That's a lovely place to end. Oh, thanks so Thank much. Thank you so much for no, your time. It's really nice. Thanks very much. The wonderful Abby Morgan. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you for Thank coming, you. guys. Thank you. Abby Morgan there discussing the music that featured in her work and also some of her personal favourites. But don't go anywhere because, as promised, we have a bit more to come in which she talks about the writing process. Not strictly speaking our usual territory, but we wanted to bring it to you anyway. Theatre, film, TV. How do you know what you want to write for? It's really interesting. I mean, I'm always running away from one to the other. And there's a very strange thing happening at the moment because everything's about television. Mm. And TV's amazing. And I love the fact... That the, I love how turned on people are to television at the moment. But at the same sense, it's terrifying because everything is amazing. And everybody's consuming everything so quickly. And it's annihilated or revered on Twitter and then it's gone. And TV used to be sort of almost like this little cottage industry where I would go and do these very small kind of often quite politically motivated pieces and they would just go out there and I, 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 you know, the film would kind of go, oh, that's so sweet you're doing, that's so sweet you're doing television and, you know, theatre would be like, oh yeah, television, I mean, it's not really where it's at and now everybody, TV's where it's at. So I think my natural instinct now is to run away again. The one thing I don't take commissions for is theatre. I never take a theatre commission because it's like absolute death knell to me writing it. But I have been working on a stage play and so that's what I'm going to try and deliver next. It's good to challenge yourself, isn't it? Yeah, and I also, I mean, you know, this next gen this next generation, who are they? I mean, they're probably sitting here, a lot of you, but the generation beneath me, you know, I just met a very young, a very young, very, very young writer coming out, and what I admired was his chutzpah, because not only was he, you know, writing, rapping, wanting to perform everything himself, was that he just... He, the, the, you know, the world was his oyster. And mm. I think when I came out, you weren't a polymath in that way. And I look at people like, you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge or... You know, a lot of co comedians that have come through now that, you know, absolutely, I can't think of a single one now, Sharon Horgan or someone, you know, the, the generation who actually, you know, they're, really, they're, you know they're, they're, they're writing and they're performing and they're directing. And so um, I think I will definitely direct in the next year because I can't not. Yeah. You know, I'm 50 this year and I've got to get some balls or... Or what's the female equivalent of that? You do the maths, but you know, uh, you know. But I, but you know, it's like we were just talking about how brilliant your podcasts are and how I listen to podcasts now more than anything, and I find them incredible company through my day, and that's a very exciting form. And and what becomes exciting is how do you uh, reach other people? How do you find mm -hmm. different ways of telling stories? Because there is a very active listening audience now who want things now. Yeah. What do you want to direct? I don't know. I'm into. I'm sort of. I've got a couple of things I'm working on. I'm not sure. You know, I find it much easier to write for other people. Mm -hmm. Will um, you write and direct, or will you direct? Yeah, else's no, work? no. I have to write. I, I, I wouldn't direct anyone else's work. <laughs> I wouldn't dare destroy anyone else's work. I might as well just sabotage Come my on. own. I'd like to sabotage my own, and then it, when someone said that scene was a bit odd, I went, "Yeah, it was meant to be like that." <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, when I have to cut a whole character or something. Can we talk a little bit about the Iron Lady? Because yeah, yeah. Um, I loved hearing you say. You forgot a point that you were, it was a story about Margaret Thatcher. Mm. And I think that's really true because it's mm. just an incredible exploration of female story, mm. really. And did you know you were writing for Meryl Streep? No, but I think... No, I, gosh, no, I didn't. Although when Phyllida came on and she was on pretty early on, I remember thinking, Phyllida Lloyd, Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia, Meryl <laughs> Streep, Meryl Streep, Margaret Thatcher. Um... <laughs> But no, but I do remember Phyllida and I went to New York and I think 
she'd said, look, she's read the script, she's interested, and we went to her beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. And I think we mm -hmm. spent a few days with her, and we turned pages, and very quickly watching an actress quietly get under the skin of a, of a scene in that way, in the mm. way that she did. It was like by osmosis. It was so... She was so that character. And it was... The, in a weird way, I don't know who else... I really don't know who else could have played her. And it's not that they wouldn't have been wonderful, you know, you know, from Judy Dench to Helen Mirren, who are, you know, extraordinary actresses. There's something about Meryl. I don't know if it's... I th I'm going to say something which I'm not sure is entirely true, but her kind of northern european scandinavian roots i think there's just something that's just adheres to shape-shifting mm. i also want to mention alexandra roach who i think did a fantastic fantastic job in that and film, yeah i track her young. yeah yeah she's a wonderful actress and i yeah and was very unintimidated and i think that was a real tribute to both those actresses that you know meryl makes everyone feel incredibly comfortable and so smart and smart actresses get that and just you know know how to interact and she was great with her yeah and when you when you form relationships with with um, you know with directors, mm. you know, mentioned Steve, but Sarah Garvin, who you yeah, worked with a couple of times, and you know, you guys did Brick Lane, and yeah. then and reconvened for Fantastic Suffragette yeah. as well. And those conversations in between those two productions, you know, almost like from Brick Lane, you know, you want to work together. It's mm. just finding the right thing. And mm. We talk. I mean, we. I mean, I was. Sarah's working on an amazing film at the moment and I've got busy with other stuff but we're also talking about films I think right. we'll always try and work together it's it, for me it's you know and, and actually the older I get the more I really appreciate those collaborations because it's where good works made but also it's where you have a good time and mm -hmm. I think those that becomes more and more important to me um, so and Sarah is you know there's a shorthand I think when you often write stuff you're trying to find you know the Part of what I love directors coming on very early, and you know, originally there was this, there's this shape shift because directors in television used to come on very late. You know, it's often six weeks, two months before you, you start. Right. And actually, there's a movement now because there are film directors coming into the industry to come into TV to come on much earlier. And the reason why that's great is that you understand and and share the sensibility of the script, but also you go through the drafts. And I think when you read a, a shooting draft or even a play, what you forget is there's been 20 drafts before that, and your shooting script may have been reduced to the very, very, very lean stage directions, but it's because the conversations you've had around around those five other images you, you cut have now been passed on to the... You know the set designer, or you know the music score, or that, and you you've shared it, and so you can strip back to something that's very workable, and that's what I love with Sarah is that we share. As a result, we share a real vocabulary and a real understanding and language. And does that collaboration kind of go on throughout the production as well? In yes, terms of absolutely, and and very much so from my point of view in terms of television. I mean, writing um, TV writers have always been very central to that process, largely because the script was really the sort of it, you know, it, the script is so important because it, 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 it's, it's what hires the director, it's what gets the finance, it what, it's what gets the actor really interested. But more than that as well, you don't have as long to shoot. Mm. So you have to be very clear on the page what that's going to look like and how it's going to be shot because directors don't have that amount of time. And it, traditionally, they didn't have that amount of money per frame. So that's why we became very story-driven in TV because we don't have as much money per frame. So you can't just look at a landscape forever. However, there's a lot more money coming into TV. So, you know, that's why we're getting the beauty of Handmaid's Tale or, you know, the extraordinary kind of, you know, narrative structure of Stranger Things or, you know, because there were some of the, those, those elements of film are now coming into television. How do you decide what you, what you want to write about? Because people, you know... It's, 
you tell great stories about people. Yeah. Um, but how do you know, you know, for the, with the split, for example, yeah. what was the seed of that and wanting to tell that story? Well, you know, my parent, I came from my parents' divorce when I was 11, 12, and I, I'm always curious when I meet someone else whose parents are divorced, I can smell it. And I'm always like, what was your divorce like? How did you... And, you know, and I'm a big believer in the good divorce, and I've seen the evidence of the bad divorce or the tricky divorce, and so that was definitely something... You know, I'm 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 reaching fifty, and I'm kind of curious. You know, no one tells you about what happens when you reach your second decade with someone. What's the next stage with someone? And I have teenagers, and I see them coming through, and I think they're extraordinary in the way they conduct their relationships. So, for me, it was very much a way to look at kind of modern relationships, and and also I just genuinely <laughs> wanted to do something really frothy, really fun. I mean, I was saying to you earlier, one of the best tweets I saw was they said, "Oh, it's basically Mills and Boone meets Rumpole of the Bailey," and I thought, yeah, that's exactly what. You know, that was the point, was it was meant to be one of those shows that you kind of went, oh, it's fun. So, But I think the thing I forget with um, series is, is it comes back again and again and again. Mm. So, so it's very different to the 120-minute form of a film. But, you know, at the moment I'm doing that. I've got a big show that um, we start shooting probably late spring, early summer next year about Cleopatra. Wow. Ten times 60 for that. Which So I'm just setting up a female writer's-led room for that. And then I've just... To finish two feature films so there's lots of you know I'm, I, I'm always, I, I look around me having having said that what's interesting is now people often approach me about great ideas and I think okay I'm 50 you know how many more years you know each 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 project can take several years out of your life and so I'm I'm distilled down much more so there are ideas that come to me now I think oh, that's a phenomenal idea mm. But and I would have grabbed it ten years ago, but I'm not the right writer for it, you know. So I'm I'm becoming more interested in directing that the projects towards the right writer. So that that's sort of growing. That side of it's growing for me. The lovely and supremely talented Abby Morgan giving us the inside gen on what motivates her, how she writes, and where she seeks her inspiration. My huge thanks to Abby for taking the time to talk to us. She is clearly one of the hardest working women in show business. Now there's a Spotify playlist for this show available via edithbowman.com as there are for all of our episodes. My website is also the place to subscribe to the podcast and catch up with all of our previous conversations with the great and good of film and TV. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do keep spreading the word if you like what you hear. Next up, it is, believe it or not, our 100th episode. So we thought we'd put together some of the very best bits of our first century of shows. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs>